Broadcasting from Manhattan Beach and the World Wide Web, you're listening to CHSRHealthyLife.net. As a service to our listeners, this program is for general information and entertainment purposes only. CHSRHealthyLife.net does not recommend, endorse, or object to the views, products, or topics expressed or discussed by show hosts or their guests. We suggest you always consult with your own personal, medical, financial, or legal advisor. for almost 11 years, and I know you just make this little move, like my guest and I, David Bedrick, who's joining us today. We're making this little move because we're on Skype. Kind of grooving, getting into the body, getting present. So let's start there. If you're joining us for the first time, we love practice here on Marian Life. We think that everything we think in our minds is really wonderful. We love awareness, but we like to embody that wisdom. Right, embodied knowing. So we do a couple of things at the top of the hour. The first thing we do is get here, is we try to get present. Not an easy thing to do. It's not a cliche. Here's what it is. It's a way for you, for me, for all of us to be present so we can receive our author's presence with an S. Right? He's coming, bringing, bearing gifts, and we want to receive them. So one of my favorite ways to invite you to get present is to find your breath. Notice where it is in your beautiful body, the temple that you move around the planet in, however you do that, with all its magical, mystical, unique ways. And just notice what's happening with that breath. Is it in your belly? Is it in your chest, your solar plexus? How is it breathing you in this moment? And what you can do is, if it feels right, is go ahead and deepen that breath, finding some way to be in co-creation with it, breathing with your breath. You might even listen to your sounds or feel the sensation of the air coming through your nostrils or your mouth. Just arriving in this moment, and I also love this practice because it's free. It's for real free. <laughs> it's not fake free. There's nothing coming after it <laughs> except more breath, hopefully. So enjoy your breath. The second part of the practice is that we would invite you to see if you can find a perspective of gratitude. Um, not always easy. Again, these are not easy practices. Finding your breath, bringing your attention to yourself could shake you, rock you, scare you, rattle you. Just notice we are here with you. You are not alone wherever your breath is finding you. And finding a portal of gratitude is such a gorgeous way, if we can get there, um, to shift our perspective in the way we're experiencing ourselves and the world and each other in this moment. And... Um, I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where it's just like it might as well be the Grand Canyon between me and my gratitude. You know, we can get resentful and frightened and all kinds of emotions and, and unconscious material between us and gratitude. I have nothing to be grateful for. Why? Why I'm sick? Somebody's sick? You know, 
we so get it. But let's try anyway, because I know you remember somewhere inside of you how when we shift to gratitude, we open up to greater possibilities. We can shift how we relate to those experiences, how we feel about ourselves. So let's try together. Here's one of my favorite invitations, and that's to ask you, who helps you do what you're doing right now? And pick anything. If you're digesting food, who helps make that food? How about the clothes on your back, the job that you have, the errand that you're running, the children that you have? Pick anything and start there. The one person, five, ten, hundred, thousands of people that help make it possible for you to do what you're doing in this moment, the electronic device you're using. And just notice, if you can, that dual awareness, notice how that starts to shift you and you feel like, oh, my God, I'm part of something bigger than me. Isn't that the goal sometimes for us to move away from just that fixation on what's not working? Even though there is value in that, let's just see what some gratitude can do. And uh, go down the list of folks who make it possible. We're going to run down our list. It's amazing and gorgeous and could be way longer, but right now we just want you to know our honorary sponsor is the One World Children's Fund.org. If you're online, checking them out. Uniting people to improve the lives of children affected by poverty. They're at the global level of sponsorship. And at the national level, we've got the National Action Organization committed to changing the way our culture values each other. And at the local level, uh, the Open Secret Bookstore in San Rafael, California, which so many people know. We get emails all the time. We love those guys. They've been there. It's just like an iconic bookstore. Um, and they've got the latest in meditation revelation. If you're in California, Northern California, looking for a good bookstore, check them out. All right, everybody. I'm feeling like I'm checking with my breath, and I'm feeling grateful and super excited my buddy's here today i love when a friend and colleague shows up in the program and we get to just um shout to the heavens the work that they are dedicated to and today david bedrick is joining us and uh he's written another amazing book as if it could get better than his last book we've got revisioning activism it's the title of his new book we're going to be talking about what that means all this hour i know so many of us are like god i need to do something i don't know what to do what do I get involved with? There's so many things to do. Can I really make a difference? What does it even mean what I'm doing? It doesn't matter what I do. All of that stuff, we're going to talk about that today. And in the different domains that we might not even think of, the individual activism, the social activism, and in the realm of psychology, what it means actually to shift the way we're thinking about what's happening on the planet. We're going to be talking about that with David today about there's a book called Revisioning Activism. Let me tell you a little bit about David. Um, he started out as a, an attorney, actually, which is really cool. He liked the law. What's going on? What are the laws? How do, how does, you know, what are the rules of the universe? What, what game are we in here? I love that he did that first. And, uh, and then turned to psychology, actually, which is gorgeous. And uh, he's a faculty member of the Process Work Institute and spent eight years uh, on the faculty of the University of Phoenix, which so many folks know about and love that, love that university. He speaks on the topics of shame, dreams, weight loss, social injustice, and alternative psychological paradigms, all that really deep, important stuff that's usually underneath a lot of the stuff that presents for us. He goes right to the depth, and we love that about him. 
He's an author, blogs for Psychology Today and the Huffington Post, and counsels people internationally. Has uh, a really great practice. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the program. But today, we want to know if you're feeling pulled towards some sort of activism but aren't sure what, as I just said. And if you are, you're in the right place. David helps us. He's going to help us. His book helps us broaden our vision to include how the social political world impacts the inner lives of us and how dialogues across diverse viewpoints can impact hearts and minds and how psychology can play a role as a social uh, change agent. In his book, he deconstructs racism by looking at divergent views of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and he deconstructs sexism by critiquing the diet industry and the way women feel about their bodies. And uh, David Bedrick brings the same psychological eye to understanding societal problems. We're going to talk about some of those today, gun control addiction, and we're going to get to as much as we can. But right now we're going to get to David, and welcome to the program. We're so glad you're here. Thank you, Marianne. I loved your beginning, connecting with the body. You talk about embodiment, because psychology, as you know, has often missed the body itself. Yeah. Psychology is in a conversation, which I think is a holy conversation, but then the body needs to be included. And then the second part that psychology too often misses is the world. And what about what's happening in the Middle East? And what does it have to do with my personal psychology? And what does it have to do with Donald Trump or abortion politics? How does that live inside of my psyche? So the world and the body are the two things that I think need to be brought into psychology. Yes, yes, you do, and you stand for that as an activist. And we're going to ask you how you got into that, David. Because the thing is, is that old paradigm, me, you know, that individuated sort of sense of me, it was really important. We moved from a collectivist culture for thousands of years to an individuated culture, and now we're moving into a, maybe, an, I would just throw it out there, an individuated, interdependent culture, moving from me to we, back to bringing back the body and, and weaving all those parts that we you know, pulled apart back together as a whole. Um, tell us a little bit about how you became an activist. Um, and why that's important uh, to revision that, which is the title of your book, actually. Well, I think it, it, I think it was probably born in me in some ways. Um, like I guess all gifts are pregnant inside of us, I think, at birth in some way. But I had the pain and pleasure of being, of grown, being grown up in a violent home, Jewish home. And uh, those don't have to go together, but in my family they did. And that meant that my father was brutal with his fists, with belts, with his voice, and that my mother was relatively disempowered. What I mean by disempowered is she couldn't say, stop, to my father. And she couldn't say, I saw that, David. I know that happened. That was bad. She couldn't do what I call bearing witness. So, and that's a very common thing in the culture also. But then what she did is three things that, that the culture does around social violence. She either denied it. That didn't happen. I don't remember that. I don't remember that happening to you, Marianne, or to that person on the street. That's not a big deal. That's not happening anymore. There's no racism mm -hmm. in the country. Mm -hmm. So she did the same thing that the culture might do to that. Or she dismissed it. It's not that big a deal. Mm -hmm. why, did, why are you making such a big deal of it? Why are you being so sensitive, Marianne? Why are people getting so outraged over small things? Mm -hmm. Crossing between the personal and the social now. She would do it to me in terms of it wasn't that bad. Or blame. 
That means some people talk about blaming the victim. That means, why did you do that? If you didn't say those things, your father wouldn't get so upset. Mm. Right? If a black person didn't protest and break windows, then there wouldn't be this racism. If Al Sharpton wasn't screaming about race, racism wouldn't be in the country, etc. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of a blaming of the person. I'm talking about my own story, or I'm talking about the world, the blaming of people. If women weren't mm-hmm. pushing their feminism so much, things would get along easier. Mm-hmm. What a disgusting thing to say. But that kind of blame happens. So that denial, dismissal, and blame happens personally. And I knew that as my personal story. And then something in me I don't know why, very young thought, I'm never going to do to people what my mother did. Isn't that interesting? Not to blame women or mothers. My father, I understood clearly. He was violent. It looked ugly. And most people would recognize that. Mm -hmm. My brain was more psychological. I thought, what makes it so bad? It's that denial, dismissal, and blame that confuses people. It messes with our heads, some people would say. Mm -hmm. It's a violence in and of itself. Mm -hmm. If you say to me, something happened to me, David, and I say, why are you making such a big deal about that? I'm creating a kind of new violence in the way I'm treating treating you or witnessing you. Mm-hmm. And this kind of experience that you say is a, a gift and a, and a curse, those are my words, you said something else, pleasure and pain, um, is really crafted or, or this gift inside of you that sort of came from all of that experience has turned you into an activist. So you stand for what? And so... Use the language so we can really understand. As an activist, you stand for what? You stand for being an ally of the unheard or marginalized voice inside the individual Mm. and the culture at large. Inside the individual means as a therapist, if you say to me, something's going on with me, I think there is a voice, so to speak, or a feeling or a body experience, something inside of you that's not known. Mm. It's not being heard. It's marginalized. Mm. It's being unheard. So I'm going to be an ally of that. If you mm-hmm. say, I'm smoking cigarettes, I should stop smoking cigarettes. I think somebody in you wants to smoke cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And she's not known. Mm-hmm. The part that wants to stop smoking cigarettes, great. Mm-hmm. But she's known. Mm-hmm. She'll say the things that most people would say. It's unhealthy. I hate the smell mm-hmm. of it. All those great reasons. But then who's lighting the match mm-hmm. and putting that cigarette to her lips? She's unknown. That doesn't mean I support cigarette smoking. It means I have to get to know that part of you deeply enough. Mm-hmm. In the culture also, there are marginalized or unheard voices or voices that have less of a megaphone. Mm-hmm. If you go to the media, if you look at the Sunday morning TV shows, how many women of color do you see running those shows? Zero, <laughs> right? Yeah. So there are some women of color speaking specifically about a marginalized voice, but it's a, it's, a, it's a less amplified voice. So that means my activism sides with that voice. It says, let's give that a megaphone, too, because just as that mm-hmm. smoker is a shadow inside you that needs to be known, the black woman, for instance, the Native woman, the Native American man, the Hispanic man, is a shadow in the culture at large. Their contribution to their vision of the country Mm-hmm. the world is not being included enough. Mm-hmm. So I want to amplify that voice. Mm-hmm. And you use the word shadow, and I would also say throughout your book you talk about soul. These are aspects of the individual and the culture and society in general that have been, uh, we've been disenfranchised from, we've marginalized, and, and uh, say speak to that, would you? Like, I, I mean, I, I could look back into, I don't know, maybe 50 uh, BCE, and, and we, we, we have uh, lots of information that shows how the split between mind and body happens. 
Um, but, but in terms of what you're talking about in activism, how is that relevant to this conversation, um, if you know what I mean? It feels important. Right. Uh, you're saying a number of different things that I'm, I'm, my mind is tracking. I keep on thinking about body, our body and the body connection and how body has been lost. Mostly, the, the body is the is least connected for white men. That doesn't mean any particular white man. Some white man may be very connected to their body, but in general, the white male is the least connected to their body. The female, the white female, more likely to be because she bleeds, because she bleeds internally, I don't mean that, but also externally. She's hurt. She's physically hurt more often than men. She can be violated, sexually violated more often than men. She struggles with the way her body looks more often than men. I'm saying more often because I'm not dismissing the fact that men suffer in all these ways, but less often, less likely. Mm-hmm. So that means that women are more likely going to have to know they have a body. Mm-hmm. Certain cultures, she'll be hurt. She'll, she'll be generally mutilated. Her body is a threat mm-hmm. to the patriarchal world in many mm-hmm. cultures. I think it's 130 million women are generally mutilated, for instance, on the planet. That was some years ago. It could be more now. Yeah, well, in the context of what your work is and and activism, I felt like that was an important point because most of us, when we think of activism, we think of the individual person. What what I'm loving that your book does is it looks at the bigger construct of what we're talking about, how we arrived here, um, and that we're not just talking about individual acts, although you are, we're talking about the the individual psyche, but we're talking about the cultural psyche, the social psyche, and how that really um, creates these energies that when we aren't aware of them, how they do damage in our lives, right? Mm, That's really important. If a person comes to me for therapy, let's say it's a woman, let's say she says, I don't feel good about myself, however she'll say that. I have low self-esteem, or I don't like myself, or I'm afraid to do certain things. When I investigate her inner world, she's likely to tell me that there's strong inner criticism. Say, what don't you like? She says, I don't like myself so much. What don't you like about myself? Well, I don't like my body. I don't like the fact that I stumble over my words. I'm not as intelligent as you, David. There's a whole set of comparisons and criticisms going on inside, inside of her. You could say it's a voice that's critical of her. And then for her to feel better about herself, I could tell her to do good things, care for yourself, get massages, lift yourself, say good things about yourself. But I will be incomplete and blind if I don't see that there's something violating her internally. She's being beaten up. Mm-hmm. Be like a child being bullied at school and then coming home and you're being nice to them. But they're being hurt. You have to go deal with the school bullying problem. You have to deal with that person. I'm making an example of a woman. That mm-hmm. her, the bullying that's happening, the violence that's happening inside of her. What is that violence? The odds are high, high, high that the violence that she's showing me is not very different from any other woman who shows up in my practice. Mm -hmm. She's thinking I have an individual psychological problem. But it's the same individual psychological problem as 80% of the women on the planet. 97% of the women are violent to themselves around their bodies internally. So that person's thinking it's an individual problem. It's not. It is. But it's not only, it's also a gender issue, a sexism issue. So she could then work on herself internally. She's working on herself, on making herself feel better, dealing with her inner criticism. She's dealing with internalized sexism. Or she could read a book on feminism or social activism or go to a march in Washington, D.C. That could also help her inner psychology because it's related to gender. So they go back and forth. Right, right. 
And that's why your book is so important, because it helps us understand that the individual is carrying the psychopathological burden of cultural wounds and shadows, and we can only do so much in the therapy office if we think it's just our problem. We get back after the break more with David Bedrick. We're talking about his new book, Revisioning Activism. We're going to talk about the different areas that you can get involved with, including and often starting with the, the interior of your own uh, activism approach with your own self and parts of yourself. So we get back right after these messages. Don't touch that dial. I don't want to date anymore. What? Did you break up again? You said he's perfect. Well, I don't blame you. My last date lasted two minutes at a speed dating event. Are you still looking for the one? There are millions of singles looking for soulmates. Actually, drama-free love. Worry no more. Nine international relationship experts collaborated to bring you secrets to drama-free love. Proven solutions that singles use to help them find, catch, and keep the right relationship. Get your copy of Secrets to Drama-Free Love at Amazon.com now. We've ordered No More Love Life Drama for Us. Hi, everybody. I'm relationship expert and radio talk show host Marianne Camarado. And I'm David Raynaud. We want to talk to you for a minute about the changing world of dating and relationships and how self-inquiry can help. Honey, did you know that 44% of the U.S. population is single and over 50% end in divorce? Yet, we spend an average of one-third of our lives trying to find a great relationship or get help with the ones we already have. Yep, that's exactly why we created the first ever of its kind, the Great Relationships Begin Within Self-Inquiry Divination Deck, because we know what it takes to attract and create a healthy, fulfilling, sustainable relationship. And it's really simple. Sit quietly, close your eyes, turn your attention inward, and draw a card. You can go online right now and get a free reading on Marianne Lide and try out the cards. And for under $20, what better way to give yourself a gift of your own attention? We wish you every blessing. We'll see you next time. Check out MarianneLive.com. .com. Okay, so you have a couple of days off and you're planning to get away from stress. You may be planning to go across the world or even taking a staycation around town. Well, Hotels.com can get you a room in over 158,000 hotels, 60 countries for 50% off. That's reducing stress already. Plus, collect 10 nights and you'll get one night free. And there's no cancellation charges, no change fees. For the best deals, even last-minute deals, visit HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click on Hotels.com. Music, information, and friends. HealthyLife.net. Welcome back, everybody. We are so glad you are here. You are in the right place. It's on so many of our hearts. It's pressing on us. What can I do? What will I do? What are my choices? There's something to be done in the world. It's, it seems chaotic for so many of us. Uh, for others, we, we might be numb and overwhelmed. Whatever the case is when it comes to activism, you're in the right place having a conversation with our author, David Bedrick, who is breaking down for us the different domains that activism can happen. He gave us a sort of overview of his posture on activism, how he became an activist, and now we're sort of looking at the different realms of activism, the personal, individual activism that happens inside ourselves, 
the activism that happens in the culture and then the actual activism that happens within the way, some might call it epistemology, how we know what we know, right? The psychological relationship we have with our experience. So those are sort of the three domains that, that David's book speaks to. And let's sort of move into um, more specifics, David, around um, uh, you have a great question that you and I were talking about how psychology or what role psychology has played in perpetuating social bias. It might be a good entree into marrying some of this material we're talking about it and how to really look at what's happening in the world through your eyes and what we can do about it. Mm, wow, what a great opening question. So many things to say. <clears throat> psychology has gotten greater and greater power in our culture. There's so many people looking to psychology, um, whether it's pop psychology or therapy, etc. But psychology has certain powers. One power is to label a person. I can label you depressed. I can label you ADHD, etc. That can be very useful. That needs to be said because some people are labeled depressed and a person says, oh, finally, I feel so relieved knowing that something is really going on. So that label will add belief for that person. They'll trust themselves. I knew something was going on. But labels can also be used to damage a person. That's not the reason they're used, I would say. But it can damage a person because a person starts thinking of themselves as sick. Something's wrong with me. I'm depressed because I'm screwed up, as opposed to depression being a kind of a process that a person's going to need to learn about throughout their lives. So that can happen. Um, we see it in ADHD also. Some children are helped being diagnosed, and they can focus and learn like they couldn't. But then we know that more children in black and brown neighborhoods are diagnosed with ADHD than in white suburban neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You're saying black and brown people are just biochemically more ill? I don't, it even pains me to even think such mm-hmm. a thought. I think, mm-hmm. of course not. What's happening? Psychology is being used because teachers don't know how to deal with certain kinds of violence that exist in the, in the ghettos, which is racial violence brought upon by racism. We have racism, great mm-hmm. tensions and poverty and things like that in families. Kids go to school. They act like they're being treated not so well in the culture. That means you don't act so kind, calmly and kindly. And then they get labeled as ill because they're acting like they don't get treated very well. And then somebody gives them medication so that they can teach them. That's a vicious kind of cycle. That's just one example. But then how psychology's labeling process can be used to pathologize, I call that, make a person think that they are sick and then start labeling people. The Mm -hmm. first time that modern psychology has done that is around homosexuality. That used to be a disorder. When when did that change? Was it in the 70s? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it's still happening, so it's hard to say. Some people are still saying. Yeah, I mean, you know, it just depends on where you are, right? That's right. So at one point, point, that was an illness. How come it was an illness? Did somebody have some kind of Mm -hmm. diagnostic criteria? No. The culture, the, the dominant culture's moral base that homosexuality is not such a good thing. And then psychologists said, we'll join in you in enforcing and reinforcing your moral base by calling it an illness. Mm-hmm. There is no diagnostic criteria. It's just a person saying, mm-hmm. a man saying, I prefer to be with men, fall in love with men, be sexual with men. That's all that happened. Mm-hmm. That changed, but that exists in certain other areas now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How does understanding this help us take an activist posture? Let's go there. Well, that's a great question. Internally, if you think something is wrong with you, 
is that inner activism now. If you think something is wrong with you, see if you can pull that viewpoint away and say, what is it do I, what is it that I point to? Do I point to my insecurity? Do I point to my relationship patterns? Do I point to habits and addictions? Do I point to strong feelings? I get angry. What is it that you think is so wrong with you? And then pull away that, once you have pointed to that area, pull away that viewpoint and inquire of yourself, if this was a kind of a gift, if this was who I am, not an insecure person, maybe an acutely sensitive person, not an angry person, a person who has big reactions and powers in the world. Mm-hmm. I could reframe that and see myself, who would I be? Who would I be in the world? Mm-hmm. Am I a person who's sensitive to things? Do I have a shamanic kind of gift so I notice things in the world? Instead of thinking I have an environmental illness, am I just a person who's more aware of the pollution in the world? Instead of thinking I have asthma, am I more aware of the air quality? Mm-hmm. Instead of thinking I'm angry, can I think that I have a big voice that wants to boom out and change things? Mm-hmm. Are the things that I think are wrong with me not only not bad and wrong, I'm okay, in interactivism, a kind of self-love, but is that the beginning or part of or the pregnancy of a way I want to live in the world? Mm-hmm. Not make me sick, just like we did with homosexuality, mm-hmm. not make me into an illness to be cured, Find me, discover mm-hmm. me, invite me into the world as I am with the crazy, extreme, difficult powers that I have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, a beautiful place in the book, and I underline it because you say it several times in different ways. And that, well, what we're talking about is, is the, the sort of taking a polypsychological approach to who we are. What that means, maybe, is, is we've got parts that we have to pull away the, the authentic self, uh, is what I hear you say, like the who we are, the witness, right? Pulling away from something that is overwhelming us and getting into relationship with that part of ourselves. Is that accurate? Or are we in the right neighborhood when we look at it that way? Yeah, very much so, very much so. Oh, because, yeah. because just like psychology has sometimes, there's some really good psychology out there, so let me, let me say that clearly, but popular psychology... And, and many therapists also and coaches um, are are so quick to I'm just saying it again to pathologize yeah. us rather than thinking about our gifts yeah. where we belong in the world. You're going to say something else? Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that these things are messengers. Like you said, what made you an activist was the pain and the gift of your childhood, right? It wasn't like, oh, David was an abused child and becomes sort of a a persona, like who you are, versus what that experience allowed you to explore was that part of your father, that part of yourself, that part of the world, right? You you invite us to try it on because we all have those parts of ourselves. That's also something you say is being an activist that the, we are uh, privileged people that can contemplate such things, but we need to try all of these things on because we are all of that ourselves. Back after the break, David Bedrick, you are going to talk with us more about the other realms of being an activist, uh, how we can move further and deeper in relationship with what really is pressing on us in the world today. When we get back right after these messages, everybody, back in just a minute. I don't want to date anymore. What? Did you break up again? You said he's perfect. Well, I don't blame you. My last date lasted two minutes at a speed dating event. 
Are you still looking for the one? There are millions of singles looking for soulmates. Actually, drama-free love. Worry no more. Nine international relationship experts collaborated to bring you secrets to drama-free love. Proven solutions that singles use to help them find, catch, and keep the right relationship. Get your copy of Secrets to Drama-Free Love at Amazon.com now. We've ordered No, no More Love, love life, life Drama, drama for, for Us. Shh, over here. Here's a secret for a virus-free computer. ESET. They've been a pioneer in the antivirus industry for over 25 years. 25 years of innovative, top-rated antivirus protection. ESET's award-winning security solutions provide a safe online experience for over 100 million home and business computer owners. They are so affordable, fast, and simple to use. So be gone, you blue screen of death. ESET's on my computer. If it's not on yours, visit HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click on ESET now. Did you know that in seven minutes you might save $522 on car insurance? Well, this makes sense. Since 21st Century Insurance's company's website has been rated number one in responsiveness by Keynote. Serving customers since 1958, 21st Century Insurance has a 24-7 online policy and claim service. You can get a quote fast and easy, so get your quote by visiting HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click right on the 21st Century Insurance banner. More exhilarating talk. HealthyLife.net. All right, everybody. Yeah, you're hearing our chit chat because we're talking during the break. David and I are so into this subject,、uh, so into it is our life purpose. <laughs> We are activists. Are you an activist? Of course, you are. You've tuned in. We all have the potential to be activists.、Uh, some of us have been doing it long. For a really long time, David's been at it his entire life. He actually、uh, considers himself a psychological activist in, in many ways, a social activist, and, and, and other fronts and so forth. So, if you're just joining us, David Bedrick is with us. His new book is titled "Revisioning Activism." So, David, at this stage and、um, this uh, particular um, segment, we want to talk about activism issues,、uh, including racism and sexism, big topics. Uh, where do we want to go with that? Because boy, these are conversations that are always been just scratched beneath the surface, and there they are for so many of us. How are they pressing on you, and what do you want us to know about them? I think of myself as a psychological activist. That means that I am not prioritizing in my own education for myself and others things like protesting, marching. Petitioning; those are very important. I'm not going to discredit those. Those are super important. But I have a psychological view, and that psychological view can be seen in that early story I told: denial, dismissal, and blame. So when I think of and witnessing, so in my view, then there's racism that happens in the world. But then the question of psychological activism is: how do we bear witness psychologically? What does that mean? That means that we look for dismissal, denial, and blame around race. That means when somebody writes, I'm thinking of this very popular tension that's been around when the Black Lives Matter movement began, and somebody said, "Why are you saying Black Lives Matter? All lives matter, don't they?" That was a big tension, and the culture still exists. It's a conflict. It's an important conflict to have because it brings out something. And for me, it brings out this witnessing power to say, "All lives matter." From my psychological model, all of a sudden, race is not in the equation. 
all lives matter. Where did black go? Mm. Where did brown go? Where mm. did Native American go? They're not in the equation anymore. So it looks like I'm a big open person, open to greater diversity. I'm saying all lives matter. But race is, being, is now gone. It's denied. It's dismissed. That itself causes an injury. Mm. I remember writing on Facebook, I would say, black lives matter, and someone would say, all lives matter, and we have a dialogue. But if I wrote... These lives, ma- these lives matter. It's hurt. Bees are getting hurt. Everyone would talk about bees. And if I talked about um, the issues of lions, everyone would talk about lions. And if mm-hmm. I talked about the Middle East, everyone would talk about Middle East. If you talk about black, half the people talk about something else. They won't even stay on the topic mm-hmm. for one Facebook post talking about race. All lives matter. The undertone is, why do we have to talk about race? Can't we push the question of race, even the identifying of race, out of the way? From, from a psychological activist way, meaning that pulls race out, it denies and dismisses the race issue altogether. That continually happens. People aren't doing that intentionally. They're doing that often out of a deeper point of view. But we have to look and say, what went away? I remember not too long ago, President Trump said, uh, there was a TV show called Blackish. And he said, could you imagine, he tweeted this probably, I think that's where it came from. He said, could you imagine if there was a show called Whitish? Everyone would be up in arms. This is an essential misconception about race. It's different being black and being white. Somebody would say, should say to him, do you not understand it's different being black in America than white in America? You're treating them like they're the same, white show, black show, they're equivalent. But they're not equivalent. If you talk to an African-American, you say, it's no different for me being white and black. That person would get furious, hopefully. Mm-hmm. You say, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. I live in a totally different world. Saying, so comparison of whitish to blackish mm-hmm. makes believe there's an equivalency. Again, there's a dismissal of the issue of race, how it impacts the world. That becomes a, a hurt, an injury, a violence in and of itself. So as activists um, in this category of racism, what can we do? The important thing is to bear witness when you see a question of race go away or be dismissed or said it's not so bad or said that was slavery, things are different, or we have a black president. All interesting possibilities to look at, but every one of those, if you look at from a psychological perspective, says it dismisses. You shouldn't complain. Things aren't that bad. Things are better. Be like and it would be like having a personal client come to me and said, I got really badly hurt as a child or in my marriage or whatever it was, and I say, it's not that bad. I'd be a terrible therapist. <laughs> I'd say, let me hear how bad it is. So that dismissal, which is subtle, but the culture is so used to it. We're embedded in this. Things are better. Things are better. Things are better. It's not that they're not, but when someone presents their pain to try to make it go away, to lessen it, pushes it away, pushes it into the shadows, mm-hmm. makes that outer issue less. I would even say something stronger. I'd say that denial, dismissal, or blame around racism is a form of racism. Yeah. It's as violent as the original yeah. version. And, and let's also say to people, this is a very courageous act for anybody involved in this kind of ongoing, necessary inquiry. And being uncomfortable doesn't mean anything's wrong. You're not supposed to know how to do this, okay? There's no roadmap, and there are very few models to follow. We have to have courage, and, David, what you're asking us to do is to stand up and stay in the conversation, and let's not pretend this is not happening, because it is. And we also want to move into the conversation about sexism, because it's a very similar thing that happens. We uh, push things under the rug, and we do it for similar reasons, power, um, you know, capitalism, all these things that, you know, we can trace it back to doesn't change the fact that it exists, and we want to make it explicit. What can we do about sexism? Mm. 
gosh, there's so many things. I, the thing that I write about and that I focus on, but there's so many things to focus on. I focus on the diet industry and body image. And the reason I do, well, people, women came to me with that particular problem and I got interested in it. But the diet industry, well, years ago it was a $60 billion with a B dollar industry. Now it's significantly higher. And it banks mostly on women's, I'm going to say this strongly, women's body shame, self-hatred for their bodies. Now, I know there's health issues, and people should say, but don't I, I want to die because I want to feel better, I want to be healthier. That's great. Mm -hmm. Many people do. Mm -hmm. But mostly the industry is focused on women, never talks about sexism, never talks about how women's bodies ought to look, how women feel in their own bodies in a patriarchal world. And these women then suffer, have voices inside their head, as I mentioned earlier, that are hateful towards their bodies, awful, brutal voices towards their bodies. If I could tell you the phrases... I remember I used to ask them, and what's the voice in your head saying about you? Oh, my gosh, Marianne, it's so incredible. You're ugly. No one will ever love you. How can you walk out of the house like that? Food is evil. These, that's not uncommon. It's mm -hmm. like 97% of the women do this to each other. If you had a woman, dear listeners, in front of you, a friend, who is saying, <clears throat> I hate my body, I'm disgusting, I'm ugly, and da 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 would you say, go on a diet program? Or would you say, oh, my gosh, and if someone else, if a man was saying that to a woman, imagine that scene. A man is saying, you're, I don't even want to say those words. You're this, you're that. I'm going to say all these hateful things about your body, and you were a friend of that woman. Wouldn't you want to tell David, get that blank out of here? Wouldn't you say, don't listen to that guy? You wouldn't send her to a diet program. I don't care if she was 700 pounds or 25 pounds. You would say, that guy is brutal and disgusting. You wouldn't send her to a diet program. Maybe. I mean, I'm going to add to that that, you know what, I think that so many of us are asleep that we might think that that would lessen their pain. We have been so indoctrinated into this story, David. Sadly, I think some people might see that as a solution. Then you could stop feeling bad about yourself as if that were the problem. And you write about that in the book. The problem isn't the weight. The problem is that we've, interior, we've created the interior dialogue from an exterior male gaze. Back after the break, we're going to talk about two other topics here just as important to us all, uh, stress and forgiveness. When we get back right after these messages, don't touch that dial. We're with David Bedrick in the house talking about revisioning activism. More when we, re more when we return. <laughs> I don't want to date anymore. What? Did you break up again? You said he's perfect. Well, I don't blame you. My last date lasted two minutes at a speed dating event. Are you still looking for the one? There are millions of singles looking for soulmates. Actually, drama-free love. Worry no more. Nine international relationship experts collaborated to bring you secrets to drama-free love. Proven solutions that singles use to help them find, catch, and keep the right relationship. Get your copy of Secrets to Drama-Free Love at Amazon.com now. We've, We've ordered, ordered No More, more Love Life, Life Drama, drama for, for Us. MarianneLive.com is where you can go to keep up to date with what and where relationship expert, author, and radio host Marianne Camarado is appearing next. Besides Marianne's three radio shows weekdays on HealthyLife.net, you can find out details about upcoming or ongoing seminars and workshops. How about information for ordering copies of books or DVDs? That's also available at MarianneLive.com. Find out about CORE Certification, Certificate of Responsible Relationships. 
www.marianlife.com. Core certification, learning tools to attract, build, and sustain great relationships. Also, sign up for Marianne's newsletter to be informed about upcoming events and possible workshops or speaking engagements in the Northern California area. www.marianlive.com. What does HealthyLife.net and Amazon.com have in common? Well, they're both available on the Internet. They both give great value. But most important, most of our positive program hosts and guests are accomplished authors. And their books are available from, you got it, Amazon.com. Now it even gets better than that. Because when you're listening on air to a HealthyLife.net host or guest, you can go directly to Amazon.com and you can order your book while you're still listening to your favorite HealthyLife.net program. So when you hear an author you like, go to the homepage of HealthyLife.net and click on Amazon.com. HealthyLife.net. Net, the Positive Radio Network. All right, everybody, we're back. David Bedrick is joining us again, revisioning activism. We are in the heat of the discussion. We are talking about not only racism but sexism and the diet industry and how this is really affecting our lives. David, during the break you were saying... Uh, we need to finish that conversation real quick for them. Um, you were talking about how, you know, that we are actually, we think we're helping people, but we're keeping each other asleep when not unpacking the deeper issues. Right. Um, right. I mean, the truth is, if you study, which I have studied like over 200 studies on diets, 5% of diet programs are sustainable, regardless of the program. 5%. 50% of the people reliably gain weight over time. You know, a year will gain more weight the, most pre- the best predictor of weight loss is one question. Do you diet? If a person diets, you can predict over the year they'll gain weight. Mm. Predict. Wow. This, though, it's, such a, it's such a stark thing, yet you brought up something so powerful. Then, but the average person, the average, the, most people have inside of them a belief, this is going to resolve my pain. I have a deep hope to feel better about myself, David and Marianne, and if I lose weight, that could do it. Do you know how much pain I'm in? Do you know that... This diet program is offering me a solution to the biggest pain of my life. Yeah. And I want to say, oh, dear friend, but it won't solve it. But what are you going to do then? How will you help resolve the pain I'm in? And we have to address that. And then I would say the pain you're in is largely a, mal- a matter of violence that you've internalized to yourself. Let me show you what that violence looks like. Let me open up the door so you can see how hateful and shaming what's going on inside of you is. And let me help you build a buffer, a protection, not just in being having a bigger body, which some women do to protect you from that. Let me help you develop a protective mechanism for that. And after that, you may find that you don't even need some of the weight. You may find a solution that's sustainable because you're not buying into a system that's banking on you not being able to lose weight, but dieting and gaining weight and maintaining that violence inside. Exactly. And these issues that we're talking about lead to stress, and we're going to talk about that, stress and activism, and the forgiveness how do we forgive each other? How do we forgive ourselves? How do we forgive these structures that are in place that are causing us all so much pain? Yeah, i got to talk about forgiveness because it's so important. I wrote an article, Marianne, that said, I can't remember what the title was. It said something. It was in the book also. It says something like, um, forgive, forgive people or forgive ourselves or forgiveness. And then it said, not yet or not so quickly. <laughs> and then I got... Tons of readers, and I had tons of people writing to me saying I was evil, and how could I suggest forgiveness is not the best thing. I got more, quote-unquote, hate mail from that particular post. Wow. And I started off by saying forgiveness can be a really great thing, which I do believe, but, and I brought out certain things. For instance, if a person 
and you know this as a counselor also, if a person comes to you and says, I've been hurt, I've been abused, and you say too quickly, well, why don't you learn to forgive them and forgive yourself? You have dismissed again that particular person's violence. You're asked to bear witness to that particular person's violence, and you say, eh, forgive it. I don't even want to hear all the details. I'll do one more thing. Many people have come to me and said that's what's happened. What happens? One, that person is, the research says, is more likely to enter abusive dynamics and relationships because he or she doesn't think, wait, I'm upset. That's a good reaction. That's a normal reaction. That's a healthy reaction. And then on an active sense, that person becomes less of a political agent. The person who takes their violence to themselves seriously, inside or outside, says, learn something about that, and then says, hey, I want to join groups with other women. I want to speak out against violence to women. I want to speak out against violence to Native Americans in our world. That person develops a political voice also. So the second thing I want to say about forgiveness, so there's, a, there's a lot. So that's one time I wouldn't counsel forgiveness right away. Mm-hmm. I'd say, person says, I'm angry. I say, right on, let me see your anger. Show me your fist. Mm-hmm. Stand up. Make a roar. Let me see how angry you are. Somebody mm-hmm. say, well, isn't that bad? Isn't that spiritually incorrect? Mm-hmm. I'd say, no, I'm finding out about their anger. They may stand up and roar. I'd say, that's a pretty incredible voice. Do you need that somewhere? Mm-hmm. Yes, I usually don't ask my boss for a raise. Well, I mean, all that roar is needed to ask my boss for a raise? Yes, because if I don't have that power, I stay silent. All that roar, it doesn't look like violence. It looks like saying, hey, you have been not paying me properly mm. or, or respecting a boundary. That roar has power in it. Roar has raw power in it for that particular person. And then it becomes a social issue. Women are earning, what, 77 or 80 cents on the dollar. Part of that is the sexism in the culture, women needing to speak out men needing to learn about that, those things can change with that. So we're seeing that internal issue and an external issue. Mm-hmm. we got to say one more thing about forgiveness. Oh, please. People are often happy when there's violence in a black community, like the church violence where the nine, uh, nine African-American people were shot by a young white male in that church. I can't remember. What was that, like two years ago, three years ago? Mm-hmm. Like that. And then... And then if the black people in that scene say, well, we forgive, we're open to that, we believe God is correct, I can't remember what they said, I'm not trying to get that right, everything makes sense, this kind of forgiveness, then the white culture goes, oh, how lovely, isn't this good, it's all gone, we don't have to think about the fact that there's racism that's deadly in the culture, Mm. so there's a support of that, yet, again, that that brings to us too as white people are kind of dismissive I'm happy with that I'd rather hear Martin Luther King say let's have nonviolent movement than have a Malcolm X say let's defend ourselves mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I think the white psyche needs to be more open to that on Martin Luther King Day everybody's happy most of the white culture I should say is happy to hear the dream speech four years later he wrote a speech that said I once said there was a dream now I say it looks like a nightmare to me mm-hmm. we never hear that Anyway, I'm just bringing in this whole thing about oh, how really? we want forgiveness to happen, ease, nonviolence, before we actually see the violence. I think that's probably the point mm-hmm. of a lot of things I'm Well, and I think that the other thread to your inquiry and what you're inviting us all to consider is moving. You have a chapter that really speaks to this, moving into the dark, moving below the surface, moving beyond what we think we know, moving into a new paradigm, a psychological paradigm, an activism paradigm. We are shifting the way that we understand what's happening on the planet, and we're not looking at it. We're not satisfied 
looking at it for what the existing paradigm is telling us it is. You're saying look deeper, scratch. And I want to read something out of your book really quick. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be human, you ask us? Does it mean to be happy, successful, and symptom-free? Or does it mean living fully and wholly engaging in what the Greek called the full catastrophe? Okay, you talk about uh, what Maya Angelou says here and, you know, that this is a new paradigm for psychology. Unlike many of the current psychologies, it doesn't promote support or coerce conformity and normality. Instead, it promotes diversity and a deep, private, and public love for who we really are. We will be healed not when we rid ourselves of the world of symptoms, tears, and violence, but when we look upon these things through new eyes. Eyes that know this is me, this is you, and we were all in this together. David, this is the invitation for us. Yes? That's so beautiful. You wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) No wonder why I like it. Well, we're coming up to the top of the hour. What do you want to leave us with? (laughs) I think I I would leave us with where you just went with Maya Angelou. She said um, in her poem that she gave on the uh, Bill Clinton inauguration, she said, take your, I won't, remember the exact quote, make your private need into your most public self. Take the things that we most dislike, our private needs. I would never tell you that I'm insecure. I would never tell you that I'm desperate to make more money even if I have $10 million. I'll never tell you that I look at my Facebook feed 10 billion times per second to see if someone likes like a post. Things. These are desperate and it's not good. But turn those into your public need. Why? Because then everybody has those. Then we become not a sick person, but someone connecting with the diversity of the world. Our desperate human selves become alive and make community not difficulty. Mm, that's so gorgeous. And there it is, leaving us on that note of activism. That's the truth. That's the courage you are inviting us towards, David. Love, always love having you here. Thank you, Marianne. Really appreciate it. Your work is authentic and real and so inspiring for us. Thanks again for coming out. All right, everybody, listen. Listen to this. You can find out more at davidbedrick.com. You can get his new book, Revisioning Activism, wherever fine books are sold. Don't touch that dial. We'll be back for our wrap right after these messages. Everybody, I'm relationship expert and radio talk show host Marianne Camarado. And I'm David Reynolds. We want to talk to you for a minute about the changing world of dating and relationships and how self-inquiry can help. I mean, did you know that 44% of the U.S. population is single and over 50% end in divorce? Yet, we spend an average of one-third of our lives trying to find a great relationship or get help with the ones we already have. Yep, that's exactly why we created the first ever of its kind, the Great Relationships Begin Within Self-Inquiry Divination Deck, because we know what it takes to attract and create a healthy, fulfilling, sustainable relationship. And it's really simple. Sit quietly, close your eyes, turn your attention inward, and draw a card. You can go online right now and get a free reading on Marianne Live and try out the cards. And for under $20, what better way to give yourself a gift of your own attention? We wish you every blessing. We'll see you next time. Check out MarianneLive.com. To be a good father is the most important job in a man's life. But it doesn't have to be hard. Play catch. Go to a park or visit a zoo. Help your child with their homework. Sit down together for dinner. Ask them how their day was. Things get busy, and sometimes we all fall short. 
but the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Learn more at one eight seven seven four dad 411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Stuff, stuff, stuff. Where can I contain all of my stuff? Hmm, how about this? The Container Store, the original storage and organization store. And I found their link on the HealthyLife.net advertiser page. They have containers for everything, including the kitchen, the bathroom, trash and recycling, traveling, spring cleaning, and dorm rooms. Just about everything you can think of to contain your stuff. The Container Store, right on the HealthyLife.net advertiser page. HealthyLife.net, where positive overcomes negative. everybody we had a great show today we're grateful that you are here we're glad you're breathing that this is part of your practice putting only good things in your mind author david bedrick was with us today talking about his new book revisioning activism check him out online davidbedrick.com for more uh, b-e-d-r-i-c-k get a copy of his book share it become an activist stand for what you believe in inside and out don't just talk about it be that is the invitation today. Go do something good for somebody else. Don't, don't let them know you did it. That's the third part of your practice, including getting a copy of David's book. And please join us next week. Uh, we've got Barbara Jaffe in the house. When will I be good enough? A question that harangues so many of us today. We'll be talking about that right here on Marian Live. Once again, thank you to our guest, David Bedrick, for joining us. And I wish you every blessing until we're together again. Take good care, everybody.